Hello and welcome to this Caged in Conversations bonus episode, the strand of the podcast where I talk to people who are somehow involved in the world of Nicolas Cage or just have something interesting to add to the conversation. And this week's episode is with Timon Singh, a podcaster, an author, and a founder of the Bristol Bad film club where we're going to take a deep dive into all the times that Nicolas Cage has been a real prick. I'll give it a bit more of an introduction when I introduce Timon a bit later in the episode but this was a fantastic conversation. Um, There is what I'm dubbing the director's cut over on Patreon right now which has an extra little chunk of conversation that kind of once we had wrapped up the episode we kind of just kept chatting for a bit and there's kind of stuff in there not that anything's like salacious or anything like that but i thought would be best suited behind a paywall uh <laughs> so yeah if you want to catch that part of the conversation head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod Today we're going to be looking at Nick Cage's dark side. Those times he's been bad, a hill, or a right bastard. Prick Cage, if you will. To join me in this discussion is a man who knows all about all things bad, whether that's bad films or bad guys. It's author, film producer, film club founder and podcaster, Timon Singh. Thank you very much for joining me, Timon. How are you today? Good, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited. Um, well, first thing, we've got to get this out of the way. I like to ask all my guests is, are you a Nicolas Cage fan? Yes. Uh, so, as I'm sure you know, in the UK, there is there was uh, a Nicolas Cage festival held up in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I live in Bristol. And I have a good friend, Tara Judah, who's a film programmer. And at our local indie uh cinema the watershed we once introduced well we did a talk basically all about Nicolas Cage and the two sides of his career the the more indie award-winning stuff that my friend Tara was talking about and the schlock (laughs) or the action-packed side of Nicolas Cage that I was talking about and we got invited to take our little talk up to the Nicolas Cage Film Festival later in the year uh, which is run by um Megan and Sean and we had a great time and there was page pub I think we won it program which was depending in which country you live in if it's the UK it's wings of the Apache <laughs> and if it's the US it's firebirds which is a top gun ripoff with Nicolas Cage but instead of, uh, you know, Tomcat fighter planes, it's Apache helicopters. And Nick Cage with pants on his head. Nick Cage with pants on his head trying to uh, get used to a lazy eye. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, was it right eye dominance or left eye dominance, whatever he has in that? Yeah. God, God knows as well. Because who else is in that? It's Tommy Lee Jones and you've got Sean Young as well, right? On paper, it's like we've got a bona fide hit and then you watch it and it's... 
Well, one of the things I was going to ask you is obviously you do the Bristol Bad Film Club. Is uh, like for one, where did that come from? Where did the film club come from? Um, what is it? So the Bristol Bad Film Club has been going since 2013. And it is essentially where we celebrate films that are so bad, they're great. And it, that, that you know, incorporates, you know, your cult classics like The Room or Birdemic, Shock and Terror. Um, and th- there is a part of me that's kind of like, are we just making fun of people that have made bad films? And yes, that is the tiny bit of it. <laughs> but I feel, if anything, we are celebrating passion. And you can, you know, make fun of Tommy Wiseau, who, you know, starred, wrote and directed The Room. But his passion comes across. And I would rather watch a quote unquote bad film where the passion is coming through than a by the numbers 200. You know, The Room is 90 minutes long. fall short in very Melanie Griffith, who is uh, Tippi Hedren's uh, daughter. And it's them as a family on the run from 50 lions to do and it's just the family getting battered by real life lions and tigers the cinematographer was Jan de Bont who directed um speed and twister he got scalped by a lion you see uh melanie griffith's head inside like a lion's mouth and she had to have facial reconstructive surgery tb hedron got her leg broken the story behind the film is insane And often I introduce these films because once you know the story of how these films were made and the story behind them, you can appreciate them on a totally different level. The story behind the room, which you can see in the film, The Disaster Artist, it's fascinating. So those are the films that we show at the Bristol Bad Film Club and why I love a good B-movie. There's something about like bad film or like critical failures and kind of commercial failures that i find fascinating and in the kind of iteration of the podcast i'm in right now uh, looking at the coppola family as a wider entity and one of the films that is like the most fascinating to me is one from the heart which is francis ford coppola's massive flop after that like ridiculous eight, uh, 70s run of just kind of hit after hit after hit and that's yeah. another one that if you kind of like peel back the layers of kind of what happened behind the scenes and like him opening this kind of dream factory studio that was Zoetrope Studios and 
decided to build sets of Las Vegas, like just set everything was sets, neon lights, like supposed to be a nice small movie, ended up being like overblown budget, and for all intents and purposes, was and to this day people go, it's crap. But there's something like ex- more exciting about that for me than kind of these films that are like, I don't know. There's like when someone says like, oh, you have to watch like The Godfather or The Godfather Part Two. There's a there's an air of like I don't know trepidation because it it comes with all this weight. Whereas I feel like sometimes with like bad movies, there's so, something a lot more enjoyable, and it's like you can find things that you love in those films as opposed to like being told you have to love stuff. Yeah, especially these days, because films are generally shepherded by studios and, you know, they're, they're a film made by committee. And sometimes that is a good thing. You look at the directors that are given free reign to do whatever they want by Netflix. And, you know, you watch them and you go, you know, maybe a studio should have got involved and told Michael Bay that Six Underground was not great <laughs> or that Army of the Dead needed to be a good hour shorter. <laughs> but what I love is when a director somehow gets an incredibly expensive, big budget based on an original idea, you know, where the, the phrase intellectual property or IP is nowhere near it. And you're like, I can't believe someone got this made. And it's something like Jupiter Ascending that the Wachowskis got made, where it got panned and it it, it flopped. I love it. Yeah. Nowhere else are you going to see a film where there are dinosaur henchmen wearing leather jackets. Channing Tatum is half wolf. Sean Bean is half bee. Mm-hmm. And it's someone's, it's the Wachowski's pure unfiltered vision that Warner Brothers were like, they gave us the Matrix film. You know, sure, let's let them <laughs> do whatever they want. And it is whatever they wanted. For better or for worse, it is what they wanted to do. And I think it's glorious because so often you see you know, a big budget sci-fi film where you can see where the studio went, you know what, this is not going to fly. But Jupiter Ascending has like a spaceship pilot who's half elephant. (laughs) And you're like, this is wonderful. It's completely insane. I remember it right that it's got a cameo from Terry Gillingham uh, as well. Like, There's that weird scene where they're kind of going into like, there's like, it goes... Bureaucrat, they have to go to like yeah, a, it's like their Brazil office. homage, yeah yeah yeah, 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 he's yeah. in it. Yeah, um, so one of the other things that obviously uh, you've done is you produced the fantastic documentary, and we were talking off mic about um about it and kind of the effects it had on me. But it's um in search of the last action heroes. What can you tell us about that? Where did it come from? So I had written my first book called Born to be Bad, where I had spent uh, just over a year tracking down all the actors that had played memorable bad guys from all the films that I grew up watching as a kid. So 80s action films, James Bond movies, uh, martial arts films, all that kind of stuff. And the book had just come out and then I got let go from my job. So I went home, browsing the internet, And suddenly I saw this uh, 80s action documentary just dropped on Kickstarter. And I had nothing going on in my life. So I DM'd the project's Twitter account. I was like, hi, you don't know me, but I just wrote this book uh, all about 80s bad guys. Um, I have 
a lot of these actors now as contacts. If you're looking to make a documentary about 80s action films, I could probably put you in contact with some of them. And the producers, Robin Block and the director, Oliver Harper, got back very quickly and they were like, uh, you would be great to come work on this project. Do you want to get involved? And I was like, absolutely. I've got nothing going on. And they brought me on as a kind of a co-producer. And Oliver, who at the time I didn't know, and he's got a very well-established uh, online following with his YouTube channel, he told me what he wanted to do, which was a documentary that charted why the 80s was this, you know, nexus for action films. Because you had the the more slower, but, you know, action films of the 70s, you know, like The French Connection and, you know, Bond films coming up from the 60s, this explosion of action films in the 80s. And then by the 90s, the idea of the action film and the action hero has changed. Stallone and Arnie and Bruce Willis have turned into Keanu Reeves and Brandon Lee. You know, it's not about the muscles that we've got live heroes going on now. So we kind of crafted the story about the evolution and then the evolution of the action film. And then we split up to do the interviews. Oliver did a bunch of them in the UK and I got sent out to LA to interview a whole bunch of people there. And that was like the craziest couple of weeks of my life, just kind <laughs> of going around interviewing people like Vernon Wells, going to Mario Kazar, who um, was the... Um, studio head of Coralco Pictures that did, you know, Cutthroat Island and Terminator 2, interviewing him at his house when he's got his big collection of Rambo knives behind him <laughs> and going to interview Cynthia Rothrock and Al Leon. And it was incredible. It was just a great time. And and the, the fact that, you know, it's, it's now on Amazon Prime as of when we're talking June 2021 and people are enjoying it, it it's wonderful. And the production company, uh, have gone on to do, uh, you know, longer fan looks at horror films and 80s sci-fi films. And, you know, they've had success after success with that. But, you know, I I'm really proud of the little uh, action documentary that I made with uh, with those guys. It was really good fun. So it's, it's two hours and 20. And one of the things I was thinking whilst watching it is how long was the initial cut of this film? I could imagine it being an absolutely epic documentary of all these stories and all these strands you guys could have pulled on. There was a much longer cut. <laughs> and the thing is, action films are such, within itself, a diverse genre. Mm -hmm. You could talk about martial arts cinema, but that's a documentary by itself. Black exploitation action films, uh, the direct-to-video action films. So, you know, your canon films with... Uh, Charles Bronson and Michael Dudikoff. You know, Arnie's a documentary to himself. Stallone's a documentary to himself. So it was really about tightening it down to a kind of what story were we telling? And it's all about that. Why this time in history? Why these guys? And, it, you know, so many factors from, you know, Arnie just being in the right place at the right time. It's the explosion of VHS at that time that produces like a wealth of action B movies. Um, it's the politics, you know, you've got Reaganism, so therefore you can have something like Rambo 2, which is, you know, American foreign policy is basically an oiled up man <laughs> with a machine gun. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, there were different versions we looked at uh, where, you know, it's basically, hey, it's Robocop, hey, it's Commando, and just talk about that. And I think that's kind of what they've done with In Search of Darkness and Search of Tomorrow, which is more kind of a deep dive into individual films. But Oliver wanted to tell more of that, uh, how action films changed over like that 30 year period from the 70s, 80s and 90s. And that's why we had to really kind of tighten the story around that rather than individual titles. Well, because there's a moment in it uh, that like, I was excited to see Nick Cage crop up on screen, but then realised that he his kind of introduction to the world of action cinema was one of the death nails uh, as such to the genre, which I find like, I find fascinating about Nick Cage kind of with, especially speaking to you and what you do, is that he kind of sits on the peripheries of all of it, whether it's the action genre, he's he's very much dipped his toe into bad movies, and I'm sure we'll mm. discuss a couple of those uh, shortly. But um, yeah, it's I kind of and it's another avenue that is a, a documentary, which I call like the the everyday the the the, the everyman kind of action movies of the of the of the nineties, right? Yeah, it's it's not so much a death nail of action cinema is the evolution I was talking about. So it's a change from Stallone and Schwarzenegger yeah. to where studios went, we can hire quote unquote Oscar winning actors because he had just won for like leaving Las Vegas yeah. to be our action heroes. And I think Die Hard proved that your, uh, your heroes could be, you know, not muscle bound supermen, but look like an every man in a vest. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it was more slimmed down, you know, your Keanu Reeves, your Brandon Lee, your Christian Slaters in Broken Arrow. And Nicolas Cage was just very much of that mold. He's just kind of like, you know, in The Rock, he's a bit of a nerdy science guy who gets thrown into a situation that's beyond his control. And then after that, after the success of The Rock, it's Con Air where he's worked out, he's doing those <laughs> vertical handstand push-ups and he transforms into the action star that you know he was for you know about 10 years after that and that his career's changed and gone up and down since then yeah it's a it's a career that like and it's one of those things that it pinballs all over the place even in that mm. kind of like 10 years where he was like doing action movies there's still all these weird oddities of stuff that he's doing i was having a discussion on twitter earlier because so we're talking uh, someone mentioned bruce willis and kind of like how his career has taken this nosedive, as it were, and the kind of being in films, whether it's like Hard Kill or Cosmic like Sin or something. Like, all this yeah. Stuff. And and how like Nick Nick Cage kind of gets a lot of flack for that. I, I like see, see a lot of the time, but I... there is a difference between those two. <laughs> and with Nicolas Cage, he makes a lot of films. A lot of them not very good because he has taxes to pay off yeah you know famously he got done by the irs he lost a lot of assets including like mongolian dinosaur skulls <laughs> that he had to give back and he you know bought haunted houses in new orleans so obviously he's got to work 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 he's had a couple of divorces it's kind of like yeah i i get why nicholas cage makes some of the choices he's had to bruce willis i can't see why he makes the amount of schlock that he does mm -hmm. he 
it's 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 very weird. To the outside, it looks like he just doesn't care anymore. Yeah. He will show up in these films, and you know, if, if if I was looking on the bright side, I was like, maybe all these indie filmmakers or wannabe filmmakers, they know that if they get Bruce Willis in their film, they can get it budgeted, they can shoot it. And, you know, boom, they've got a foot on the ladder. Maybe that's why he's doing it. But then he shows up. He looks so fucking bored to be there. <laughs> he looks so unenthusiastic. And it's like now having Bruce Willis in your film is almost like, you know, it's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I was listening to the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast, and they had Frank Grillo on. And Frank Grillo was very candid. He's like, look, I make a lot of rubbish as well. I've got, you know, bills to pay. I've got, you know, he's not an A-lister. He is a reliable B-level actor who's done some great stuff and he's done a bit of schlock and, you know, he, he's in the Marvel films, but then he also does some awesome stuff. I'm not saying the Marvel films aren't awesome. I'm just saying, yeah, you know, yeah. he gets a bigger paycheck from, from those things. Um, but he he kind of hinted that Bruce Willis's decisions might be related to kind of health issues that you know that he he's kind of got his own things going on maybe he he's not up to working for a big three month long shoot maybe he just wants to come in and work four days get a check and go home and if so fine but it it doesn't appear like he needs the money yeah like Nicolas Cage needs the money so it's it's a very confusing situation with Bruce Willis and <laughs> Part of me kind of just wishes he would like retire rather than dilute his legacy. But then he, the last two Die Hard films have kind of done that to a degree. And yeah, and I, I think it was last year as well. There was all that big like hype around Die Hard, and then it turned out to be a car oh, battery advert. Car battery advert. And it was. It... I knew that was coming as soon as it was announced. I was like, it's not going to be like. And also, whenever they are talking about a new Die Hard, it's threatening to be this Die Hard year one. It's like, find out how John McClane met Holly Gennaro and became, <laughs> uh, you know, the man he is today. It's like, that's fucking boring. No one cares how he met Holly. And his origin story is Die Hard. Oh, yeah, it's like, yeah. just before then, he's just an ordinary cop. There's nothing spectacular <laughs> about him. I don't want to watch an origin film where... He's gone through this shit before when he was a bit younger. That negates the whole point of Die Hard. So I, you know, I, uh, it's it's a weird situation. Well, obviously, Die Hard has one of the best on-screen villains, and you've written not one but two books about on-screen villains. How did? Well, where where did the germ of that idea come from? Uh, RoboCop, but also Die Hard, because, um, like you said, Die Hard does have you know, arguably the best villain. You know, you have an actor in Alan Rickman who was outshining the hero. Yeah. And the reason they put in more scenes of Alan Rickman was because uh, Bruce was doing uh, moonlighting and Die Hard at the same time. He was knackered. And sometimes he needs to have days off. So they're like, hey, let's put more of Alan in because he's good fun. And it, it became, you know, unfairly maybe the alan rickman show people when they think of die hard they kind of think of bruce willis and alan rickman on equal pedestals which isn't often the case um but i was watching robocop 
And it was like, uh, we, we have this tiny 100 seat cinema in Bristol called The Cube. And they were doing a anniversary screening of it and sold out crowd. Everyone's like quoting all the lines and everything. But what I noticed was everyone was quoting the bad guy lines, <laughs> you know, like bitches leave. Can you fly, Bobby? And, and I was like, all the actors playing the bad guys, Kurtwood Smith, Ronnie Cox, Paul McCrane. I was like, they are not who you would normally cast as bad guys and they look like they are having a great time <laughs> whereas um peter weller you know over the years he's like oh robocop was a miserable experience it was horrible being in the suit and i think he's mellowed over the years like he did robo doc and he's appearing in in search of tomorrow and, and now it's like robocop 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 but back in the day it was just like oh i don't want to talk about robocop <laughs> whereas the the bad guys, they looked like they had a great time. So I had had a few beers and I was cycling home. And I was like, you know what would be good to do? Talk to the people who played bad guys. Because Bruce Willis and Sylvester Sloan and Arnie, I'm never going to get anywhere near them. <laughs> they have a PR team. They will tell me the same stories you can read in magazines and documentaries you've seen a hundred times. But I bet Vernon Wells, who played Bennett in Commando, has got some great stories. <laughs> when was the last time anyone heard from him, like in a in a proper interview? You don't really. And Vernon Wells works all the time. He's constantly working. But you know, at the time, I was like, I haven't seen him recently. And and what about some of those Bond villains? And what about the guys that were in the Indiana Jones films? And, and you know, I got home, wrote like a, a quick list of like bad guys that I loved as a kid. Woke up the next morning. And for the first time in my life, a drunken idea that I'd had was still a good idea in the morning. <laughs> so I was like, maybe there's something here. And so I started reaching out to the actors. And Vernon Wells was the first guy that said yes. And so it was the first interview I did. And once I had that done and I could go to other actors, like I've already got Vernon Wells' other doors opened. And before I knew it, I, in less than a year, I'd written a book and interviewed you know, Ronnie Cox and Al Leon, who plays every Asian henchman in every 80s action film ever. And Sarah Douglas and Jack O'Halloran from Superman 2. And a bunch of the terrorists from Die Hard. Amazing. And David Patrick Kelly from The Warriors. And Bill Duke from Commando and Predator. And, and yeah, and it was amazing. And, and, but then once that book was out, uh, you know, lots of people would contact me going, I really liked your book, but why didn't you get this guy? Why didn't you get this guy? And, you know, the answer was often they were working and I was the first time writer and their manager and agent wisely kept me away from them for whatever reason. <laughs> it's like if I was, you know, Robert Patrick's agent, I wouldn't let some guy who's never written a book go anywhere near him. <laughs> But now I had a first book out, a lot more agents and managers were like, yeah, no, okay, that's fine. And so the new book that's just come out, I did get Robert Patrick this time. Amazing. And I got people like Stephen Lang from, you know, Avatar. And I got William Fickner and Kim Coates and um, Tony Todd. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's hopefully I've filled in some of those plugs. There are still some actors I weren't, wasn't able to get. <laughs> But because part two took a lot longer to write than part one, I, that's it. I, I was like, if I can't get 
these actors this time around, I'm never going to get them. And after years and years of trying to get some of these actors, I'm, 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 I'm done. I'm done. I'm exhausted. <laughs> so you heard it here, guys. There'll be no Born to be Bad free, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Um, be bad with a vengeance. What, no. like, yeah, what, was, what are the people you kind of look at in both the books and go like, whether before or kind of afterwards where you're like, shit. I'm going to be speaking to X person. Like, who who are the kind of names for you? Not to not not to like obviously uh, downplay anyone else, but are there are there kind of certain people where you're like, holy shit? Tony Todd was one. I was really excited to speak to Tony Todd, but I was also kind of worried because I didn't want to talk to him about horror films. Mm-hmm. I, I I touched upon Candyman because obviously it's, a, it's a, a big thing in his canon, but I kind of want to, you know, not just talk about Candyman, talk about his other villainous roles. And he's such a smart, intelligent man. I kind of, he's also someone who's been interviewed so many times. I mm-hmm. didn't want to bore him <laughs> with my questions. And that's the most worrying thing. And also Robert Patrick, I was really worried about because, you know, he's quite an intense guy. <laughs> and again, I bet people have just talked to him about Terminator 2 till his eyes fall out. And I made it very clear that, yes, I wanted to touch upon that. I didn't want to talk about the X-Files. Um, and he was up for that because he was like, look, 95% of the time people just want to talk to me about Terminator 2. And 5% is the X-Files. And I was like, I want to talk about Double Dragon. I want to talk about your wilderness years. And I, I want to be like really upfront. I was like, look, after Terminator 2, you're in Wayne's World and Last Action Hero essentially playing the T-1000 in cameo form. Were you worried that was going to be your career for the rest of your life, just playing the T-1000? And he was very upfront. He was like, yeah, no, that was a real fucking big concern. And... I think he appreciated that we were talking about films that people don't often talk to him about and how Copland was a bit of a revival for him career-wise. And I think he kind of appreciated that while I, you know, I had to ask the obligatory Terminator 2 questions, that I was kind of like, let's talk Double Dragon, man. What is going on with your hair in that one? <laughs> and he was like, to this day, Double Dragon is the most I've ever been paid for a role. It was great fun. <laughs> He's got nothing but good memories of Double Dragon. So, yeah. Perfect. So, yeah, what is it like you're, for people who obviously haven't read the books, what is it you're kind of like, apart from just try, like speaking to these people, what are you trying to shine a light on with uh, Born to be Bad books? So what I was trying to shine a light on is that everyone's career is different from playing a bad guy. So for Alan Rickman, you know, he went on to bigger and brighter things after Hans Gruber. But I was very aware that in some acting circles, well, coming off the back of some franchises, not everything ends up going your way. And I'm thinking of actresses who've played Bond girls. It might be a big break at the time, but it's very few that go on to bigger and better things unless they were kind of established beforehand. Mm -hmm. Your Eva Greens, your Michelle Yeohs, they kept working afterwards because they had careers before. And that is often the case with people who've played Bond villains. So I spoke to Andreas Vinuski, who plays 
Tony, Carl's brother in Die Hard, and he also played Necros, a big blonde Russian henchman in the Bond film, The Living Daylights. And he was very upfront that, you know, after the success of those two films, very closely back to back, that he would have a big career in America. And apart from like, you know, a role in Mission Impossible playing Vanessa Redgrave's bodyguard, he was like, nothing. He was like, I was expecting to go to America and play Nazis or something, or, you know, big evil Russians. He was like, just, it, it didn't pan out for me. And everyone has a very different story because it's not all big bodybuilder types. That is some of them. You needed big muscular guys like Vernon Wells or Gus Rethwish, who plays a buzzsaw in The Running Man to fight people like Arnie. But then you've got British thespians like Paul Freeman from Raiders of the Lost Ark or David Warner from Time Bandits. Uh, Andreas Vinuski was a ballet dancer. Uh, people like Ao Leong, they started off kind of as martial arts stuntmen. Um, so everyone has a different story and everyone ended up in very different places. So the, the thing I wanted to just kind of find out is, you know, were these films that you remembered, that you're remembered for, good things for you? Or were you stereotyped as a result? Were you always getting pursued to play, um, you know, bad guys? And Paul Freeman, who's a British actor who played Belloc, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was like, after that, I kept getting offered roles to play Nazis. He's like, I play a Frenchman, first of all, <laughs> in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's like, after that, it's like, do you want to play a camp commandant? Do you want to play Himmler? And he's like, for the record, I've played like Himmler twice now. But it's like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So um, yeah, everyone has a different story. Everyone has ended up in different places. Your Stephen Lang, your Kim Coates, your William Fitness, they have like careers you know, that have gone on for decades. And then you've kind of got people like, you know, Andreas Vinuski or, or Al Leon, whose careers changed. They, they could become producers or Al Leon became like a stunt coordinator and, you know, a second unit um, director rather than just being a stuntman and martial artist or an actor. He, ne he never views himself as an actor. It's, it's more like, you know, I'm just there to fight the hero. Oh, a, a hired hand. Or yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. Um, you mentioned, well, yeah, let's talk about Nick Cage's turns as bad guys. So do you want to throw one out? What is what, Well, let, let's go in at the top. What is your favourite Nick Cage bad guy? I mean, the obvious, the obvious and lazy answer is obviously Castor Troy. And for that reason, I kind of don't want to say it. Um, <laughs> but it's the best. Um, he he spends a lot of time playing anti-heroes, yes. whether that, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's always something, you know, like where he's playing Milton in Drive Angry or, um, uh, you know, a Ghost Rider or, um, you know, characters like that. They're neither good nor bad. They're inherently kind of, you know, on the level. I'm fascinated by, have you, I'm sure you have seen this as someone who runs the Nicolas Cage podcast, but the Christian faith film he did, Left Behind, where he mm -hmm. plays a pilot during the rapture. Now, because he's not raptured, <laughs> clearly he's a bad guy because he cheated on his wife with a stewardess. And I was like, technically, everyone in that film is a quote-unquote bad guy in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> they weren't raptured. Um, so, I mean, his, his character was Captain Steel or something ridiculous yeah. like that. And the fact that film's directed by Vic Armstrong, 
legendary stuntman Vic Armstrong, who doubled Harrison Ford in all the Indiana Jones films and Christopher Reeve and Superman. The fact that Vic Armstrong directed like a Christian rapture film yeah. with Nicolas Cage. Fascinating. <laughs> Just fascinating. Yeah, there's some there's a weird trivia of that one that like uh, his daughter plays the drug addict on the plane as well. I think I, I'm I'm assuming that he is a man of faith. And I think one of his only other directing credits, or one that is of note, is just because it shares a title of a Nick Cage film, is the Dolph Lundgren, I think it's like 1993 film, Army of One. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen Army of One. Good accent choice by Nicolas Cage in that one. <laughs> a film that, um, like many films, has been butchered by uh, the evil brothers uh, of Hollywood. Weinsteins, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um I managed to get out of uh, Larry Charles on Twitter that apparently there is a, a better cut of that film that uh ne- never got to see the light of day. I've enjoyed Army of One. Mm-hmm. Um but bit about Nicolas Cage being a man of faith, I'd be very interested to oh, know not, if that's true because not he, Nick Cage, not Nick Cage, Vic Armstrong. Oh, Vic right. Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. For, for Nicolas Cage, clearly a, a a bit of a, a paycheck movie because um, yeah. he's into all sorts of supernatural, spiritual. Yeah, he's a man of magic. Man of magic. He, he wants to be buried in a big pyramid or something. He's got like a mausoleum somewhere. So, yeah, I mean, fascinating choice. I wanted to go back to the thing of Castor Troy. And what I find fascinating about that is obviously, like, if you say Nick Cage is a villain, everybody goes. Cast the Troy, but what's fascinating mm. about that film is he's only cast the Troy for the first fifteen minutes of that yeah. film, which is like for a bad guy like to kind of leave his mark and an actor playing that bad guy almost being synonymous, like a synonymous role for someone. I think it's fascinating, and I can't really think of anyone else who's managed to kind of be on screen for as little and make such such a large impact and leave a last I mean John Travolta does the same and that you know he's the good guy and he's just you know <laughs> boffing along for the rest <laughs> of the film it's it's a great film and I don't know if recently people have kind of turned on it a little bit that, that I did see this thing like last time it was on TV people are going can't believe people really like face off it's like Fuck off, man. Face Off is great. <laughs> Face Off is great. And then when it was announced that Adam Wingard might be doing a reimagining reboot or sequel, and he says it's going to be a sequel, which I'm fascinated to see mm-hmm. how that works. Um, I mean, part of me kind of just goes, you know, why don't you just do it with like Charlize Theron and Michelle Yeoh yes. or something? Rather than do a sequel where it's kind of like, do we want to see John Ferrara and Nicolas Cage these days do mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah. again, again two actors who are making lots of films in bulgaria i'm sure they'll <laughs> leave at the chance but do we really want to see sean archer and castle troy back after 25 years or something has he been in another coma do we care it's one of those films where i think it's Maybe they can just set it in the same world and go, hey, remember when Sean Archer had to go undercover by swapping someone's face? Can't believe we have to do that again. (laughs) His agent, Charlie's Theron, and she's got to swap her face with Lapita Nyong'o. And 
right away after saying that, that is a film that's going to be torn <laughs> apart by certain parts of the internet for, <laughs> for that. So maybe not, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, but at the same time, that's something I want to see. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. So this, this, this is a film I wanted to mention that I guess, and one of Cage's uh, villain roles, and I'm pretty sure this would fit very much in the um, Bristol Bad Film Club uh, criteria is the 1993 film Deadfall and Nicolas Cage's turn as Eddie King. Have you ever seen Deadfall? People keep telling me I have to see it, and I know it's by, you know, Christopher Coppola. <laughs> I've never seen it. It's the one where people keep going, you've got to see it, you've got to see it. And I'm like, I know, but I've seen Vampire's Kiss, and that was pretty special. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, Deadfall, and I, I haven't seen it. And I know it's got Michael Bean in, and I love Michael Bean, but it's just, it's one of those that it, 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 is, a, it is a hole in my Nicolas Cage filmography. Oh, it's, it's something to behold. And it's kind of got this weird history in that um, Nick Cage's character is, 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 is very much one of the villains of the piece. And I, I can't really say this without... He's in, a, no, he's in a film years later called Southern Fury or Arsenal, depending on which territory you watch it in. But for no reason, he has reprised the character of Eddie King. I'm not sure if you've ever seen like a still from Southern Fury. He's got this like prosthetic nose and he's got a horrible wig on. And it's it's fascinating. And there's something about Nick Cage. And I don't think he's played enough villains in my eyes. I think he'd be fantastic. And I know that... Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of Lord of War. Again, that's another where he's your quote-unquote yeah. protagonist, but he's he's clearly a bad guy, oh, very yeah. much like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street. It's like there's there's nothing redeemable about him. It's like you might try to kind of go, well, he's just doing stuff to get by and look, his brother died. It's like, no, he's, he's an awful, he's an awful person. I'm looking forward to him, to the, you know, the unbearable weight of massive talent where he's playing an egotistical Nick Cage mm -hmm. being berated by a younger version of Nick Cage. That is going to be fascinating. I don't know what's going to happen in that, but I can see him doing a more villainous take on himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I saw an article today, which was with the like a, a brief interview with the director, where he explained how like Nick Cage went through every line of the film, and they've apparently recreated like. Uh, a moment of Nick Cage kind of really being down on himself and they've recreated a scene from leaving Las Vegas where he's in the pool drinking beer and like he's the director's like I just there was points I didn't know how to direct him because like this is a guy who essentially what we're showing is elements of his life he's already lived and I, I think the thing that got me most excited for the film apart from the premise was seeing him in the famous Terry Wogan uh, interview oh, outfit money 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 <laughs> uh, flying I'm, kick towards the audience can't yeah. wait yeah i think the moment i saw that yeah nick cage decked out in that same outfit again the leather jacket the the wild at heart t-shirt i was like this film is going, going to, be, to be something special. it's either gonna soar or it's gonna crash and burn so spectacular i can't see any middle ground <laughs> But recently, there there have been so many films where he is 
you know, and quote unquote, every man who is possessed by pure evil and goes on a rampage, whether that is like color out of space, uh, mum and dad, uh, where he goes on a rampage, Mandy to a lesser degree, mm-hmm. well, no, to a greater degree, goes on a rampage. <laughs> but then it insinuates he was always that person, you know, deep below and Willie's Wonderland, all these kind of like characters that are pushed to extreme levels of violence by external forces and often i just wonder people kind of cast nick cage in those roles because they know that it requires calm 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 extreme cageness the cage rage yeah yeah well that's yeah there's something fascinating i recently had a discussion with one of the producers of mandy and color out of space and he perfectly summed up like directors working with nick cage and kind of cage himself is like a garden hose that it is kind of un unraveling and kind of going wild and if you know how to hold on to that hose you can water your garden but if you kind of let it go like it will just like fly all over the place and like i think for me there are elements in cage films that are, are really great and it's the earned freakouts. I know there's like, I'm sure you probably would have seen it. Is the there's that famous YouTube clip? Nicholas Cage loses his shit. That's mm. like just a sizzle reel of all the moments that, and it's I that like to be honest, that's partly the reason I started this podcast because I was like, I think like like you with the 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 film club. It's like that thing of like, oh, isn't it like always? You start off going. I'm poking fun at something, and then before you know it, you're like, um, "I'm an ardent fan. I I, I can't have a soft spot for these things, and I, I I'm, I'm defending films that a lot of other people are like again. That's terrible. I'm like, no, Vampire's Kiss is is an underrated like masterpiece. Yeah, I do come down like Arbed in Community, Nicolas Cage, <laughs> good or bad, and it breaks him. But I think it all comes down to the director. I think he's done a lot of films with lazy directors where they yes. just go, go full Nicolas Cage. And it's funny. And that's it. Knowing that it'll become a meme or a clip on YouTube that people will go, oh, I'll go see this. Nicolas Cage goes crazy. Um, but then you get someone like Ridley Scott with Matchstick Men, who Nicolas Cage plays someone who has a lot of issues. And, you know, he, he flips out. But that is a really good film. I love Matchstick Men, and I think it's so underrated, and his performance is so underrated uh, in it as well. Um, as you know, a con man who discovers he's got a daughter and all the <laughs> twists and turns and betrayals and everything that he goes through, like fear of being found out. I think it's great, and no one really talks about his performance in that, which is a shame. Yeah, there's there's that thing that caged in a lot of like amazing directors like in between films i would say do you know what i mean because like ridley scott kind of has that thing where he does like a gladiator and then he'll do like magic man and then oh, like, a good year with yeah ridley yeah, scott yeah. and like gore verbinski it's like pirates of the caribbean films and then the weatherman yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. which is really good but no one talks about the weatherman yeah or even like martin scorsese like do you know what i mean it would be like big film, uh gang, gang or like whatever like and then it's bringing out the dead like do you know what I mean and like nobody yeah. really talks about it. and it's he's kind of had this bizarre career where he's worked with if you kind of yeah if you kind of strike it up of like 
who who are like some of the quote unquote greatest directors of all time. It's like Nick Cage is one of the guys who's like ticked the box. Do you know what I mean? Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, like it's, John like, Woo. Yeah, John Woo. Oliver, yeah, yeah. Oliver Stone, even if it was World Trade Center. He's got a brief cameo in Snowden as well, so we'll give him Brian De Palma. And yeah, yeah, yeah he's, I mean, he's worked with everyone, um, good and bad. And, <laughs> yes, yes. But then you look at the directors, and some of the directors are like really hit and miss, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, even yeah, so, it's yeah, it's it, it's a strange thing with Nicolas Cage. You always hope for the best, and then when you kind of see some of the stuff come out with like the generic titles that you would expect on a Bruce Willis film, like arsenal or rage and you're like i can't tell one film from another <laughs> is which one's this which which one's that one which one's pay the ghost is that the one with john cusack no that's frozen ground i i i don't care i don't care anymore yeah i think um as much as like you, you mentioned earlier about face off and like not wanting to see that team up of travolta in cage again which i, I i've got to say i agree with you I think the the team up from Face Off I'm looking forward to most is Prisoners of the Ghostland. That is Nick Cage and uh, Cassavetti, Nick Cassavetti's back together. Yeah, 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 yeah. In what looks like a film that could be something to to rival Face Off in its kind of caginess and out there and the influence of what Eastern cinema with a kind of uh, a director who's kind of off the wall in Sion Sono. Yeah, for your listeners that might not be aware, I mean, but I'm sure they are aware, it's essentially like Escape from New York, but a supernatural version, like a criminal has got to go rescue the governor's daughter who's been kidnapped into a dark mirror universe or supernatural universe or something crazy. and And then he's got bombs strapped to his testicles. Well. Very, very escape from New York, essentially. And then there there's, <laughs> then there's Pig. It's like where he's a what a truffle hunter who's pigs kidnapped and Willy's yes. Wonderland. All these kind of elevator pitches. Like, oh, Nick Cage is locked in an amusement park and all the animatronics try and kill him. It's like, yeah, I'll go see that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, uh, uh, but then it just kind of backfires with something like Jujitsu, where. Oh. I I was so looking forward to that, especially with the talent involved, you know, like Tony Yar and, you know, Juju Chen and everyone. Because I, I, I love martial arts films. And it, oh, I, after half an hour, I was like, I've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, there's, this is not good. I think it's Scott Adkins mentions in the documentary about the um introduction of that like shaky cam like to to hide like people who haven't got the talent to do something but where mm. jujitsu falls down is it does that with people who have got the talent so you obviously you've yeah. got you've got like tony jar like who very capable martial artist and then the camera is going all over the place. And it's that film is, again, elevator pitch sounds like 
It's Mortal Kombat, like it's Predator yeah. with martial artists or something. And but the thing is, like the director Dimitri uh, Logothesis, Logothesis, yeah. who's worked with um, Alan Moosey doing those kickboxer films. Some of those fights are really good, and Alan Moosey may not be the best actor. He's a very competent martial artist. Yes, um, and it's kind of. The choices in it were kind of like, look, you got Frank Grillo, you got Tony Yacht. All these guys are very good at action. Why are we watching a very dull action film? It's like when American films put Iko Uwais in them, like Stuba or Mile 22. And you're like, you got the guy from The Raid. Why are we cutting every three seconds? It's like, just put five stuntmen in front of him. He'll smash through them. One take, Boom. Just let the man work. And it's like, oh, no, this is American style of editing and filming. we got five... Ca- oh, no, it, it's very weird. It's very weird choices. Well, perfect. Well, we've talked about one of the worst Nicolas Cage films in recent years. Um, I always like to end these conversations by asking my guest, what is your personal favourite Nick Cage film? Um, so I am 37. Mm-hmm. So I was a young man during what I like to call the golden cage, <laughs> which is that 95 90 to 97, where I was like 13 to 15 years old yeah. and the rock Con Air face-off were coming off, coming out. And I didn't get to see the rock um, in cinemas because I was too young, but my uncle got it for me on VHS. I, I remember this birthday because he gave me the, <laughs> The Rock and True Lies, two VHSs, and there were two action films I watched over and over again. And I am more than happy to give Michael Bay the kicking that he deserves every now and then for his uh, hubrisly long films. But back in the day, that man could shoot an action film. And The Rock is great. It's it's a great action film. Nicolas Cage, perfect. Sean Connery, amazing. Supporting cast of, you know, Tony Todd and uh, Michael Bean and John C. McGinley and Leo McGarry from The West Wing. It's, and the music and the location. Oh, and you can see the action. It's it's great. He, oh, it's, it's great. It's incredible. And yeah. sure, <laughs> it's Nick Cage going all action hero but you've got that perfect blend between a studio film and Nicolas Cage still clearly being given free range to be Nicolas Cage you read about how all the stuff about him being a vinyl beetle maniac stuff was all ad-libbed and you can clearly see him having fun with Sean Connery and I I think today you know Michael Bay is often the punchline to a joke and with good reason sometimes, but early on, Bad Boys, The Rock, I even like Armageddon, were very good, competently made action films. And it's just a shame that he doesn't have the discipline that he used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I would say The Rock because it's it's great. It's just great. And it's not even like a guilty pleasure, which is kind of a wanky get out of jail free card to say that I like this yeah. film that other people yeah. might not like. It is a great action film and and everyone in it and everything about it is brilliant. 
hey if, if if ever the like the film snobs come at you for like in the rock say it's in the criteria it's in the criterion collection yeah. come on motherfuckers that that and yeah that, that and armageddon, and armageddon. Yeah. armageddon is yeah, unbelievable <laughs> i still can't believe that happened but i'm so glad it did I've I recently bought a uh, a French DVD of the Armageddon Criterion DVD because it's like the only way I could find it, and it's like I'm just like I can't like I just sometimes look at it, it would be like Does that still oh, have the um Ben Affleck commentary where he's clearly had a few beers and he's kind of like you yeah. know doesn't give a shit he's yeah just, where, where it's he's just like, tawny anecdotes just kind of like yep. This, this was my first day. They told me to zip line down that. Yeah. And then we went here, NASA, and, you know, yeah, he's, it was he's, crazy. He's shit-talking about Michael Bay, like, Bay like yeah. making him get new teeth for the film, which, like, I so I've covered that film on my podcast because it's uh, John Schwartzman is the DOP on that film who is related to the Coppola family in a weird way. So uh, This I, is I, another <laughs> bad thing about the age of streaming, the audio commentary. I mean, if... John Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger getting hammered on the Conan <laughs> the Barbarian audio commentary. And every time there's a sex scene, Arnie going, ah, oh, just having fun with it, just kind of go, ah, oh, I, I get to have sex again. Oh, look, <laughs> look at my ass. It's just like, ah, oh, unbelievable. I, I love a good audio commentary. And then there was a period where they all got very rigidly controlled and heavily edited, where yeah. clearly the actor said something they shouldn't have. Back in the day, though, when they first started, yeah. glorious, glorious. A, a, amazing time. And well, um, where can people find yourself if they want to keep up to date with everything you're doing? And more importantly, where can they watch the documentary and buy the book? Oh, right. So in search of the last action heroes, I think is on Amazon Prime right now. Yep. But if you're listening to this and it's no longer free to watch, I'm sure you can rent it from Apple, um, you know, iTunes, Amazon Prime, all the usual suspects. I'm sure you can rent it. Um, my book is available wherever you can get books. It's on that, you know, tax-dodging global retailer. <laughs> but you know what? We're post-COVID now. Support your local bookshop. Just go into your bookshop, order it through them. Support your local bookshop, people. Do that. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Timon Singh. Um, I'm on well Facebook under Born to Be Bad Book, and you can find me there. Um, I'm also on Instagram under Time and Sing, but unless you really want to see pictures of my dogs and whatever Star <laughs> Trek or sci-fi tat I'm buying these days, and, <laughs> you, you know, just stick to Twitter and, and, and Facebook. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for coming and getting caged in with me, Timon. Oh, it's been a pleasure, man. It's been good fun. It's been good fun. Well, there we have it, guys. There was my conversation with the fantastic Time and Sing. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, and yeah, if you haven't already, if you're new to the podcast or you're new to Time, and be sure to check out his book, Born to Be Bad. And if you're new to the podcast and you enjoyed this conversation, please do go back through all of the older episodes and. Um, Find some more conversations or films that, 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 that you enjoy 
Uh, well, you, the conversations, you won't know if you enjoy them until you listen to them. But yeah, you can look through. If there's a favourite Nick Cage film of yours, you can go back and listen to that episode. Or you can go back and listen to some of the conversations with people who have worked with Nicolas Cage, whether it's Daniel Noah from Spectavision, who worked with Nicolas Cage on Colour Out of Space and Mandy, or Brian Taylor, who worked with Nicolas Cage on Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, and Mum and Dad, as well as Marco, Marco Kyris, who was Nicolas Cage's stand-in from 1994 to 2005 for many the golden era of Nicolas Cage and there's so many more conversations that you can kind of get into have a little nibble on and you will very much enjoy if you want to get um, involved with the podcast you want to have a chat with me head on over to caged on pod on all the socials so that is twitter instagram facebook and letterbox where you can kind of get glimpses of conversations that i've got coming up or films that are coming up on the podcast as a whole and yeah really figure out do a bit of online sleuthing to kind of figure out oh that's going to be coming up on the podcast very soon or if you want to drop me an email if you have a good lead for me somebody who you think you should really speak to that person drop me an email at cagedinpod at gmail.com if you enjoyed this episode please do be sure to rate review and subscribe on apple podcast acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now as always i've been petrus pat Silvers, i've been caged in and i'll catch you next time This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.